Please be seated. So Pastor John has started working his way through Romans on Sunday mornings, and he is going to continue to do that. But as he does that, Pastor Richard and I thought it would uh, be best if we started uh, our own series. So when he is absent, we're going to be working our way through First Peter. Um, that way it gives us uh, something that we can uh, progress through. We can see all of what Peter has to say and uh, it will help keep both of us on track. So when John's here, he'll go through Romans. Today we're going to start in First Peter. So uh, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, please turn with me to First Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1. All right, so you will recall Peter... Uh, is an apostle, right? He was one of Jesus's inner three. So Jesus had, he had the 12 disciples, but then he had his boys. So James and John and Peter were in that inner three. And, and Peter in particular played a prominent role in the gospels. So you'll remember as we worked our way through Luke, we saw Peter at some high points, right? He was the he was the dude that came out and said that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He was the one that first proclaimed that. So high point, and then immediately a low point where Jesus rebuked him, saying, get behind me, Satan. We, we see Peter pledging his undying loyalty to Jesus in Mark 14, and then a short while later, he denies him three times as Jesus is on trial. So uh, often we see Peter is the stick-your-foot-in-the-mouth doofus in the Gospels. But we also see Peter in the book of Acts, especially the first five chapters of the book of Acts, as kind of like the apostolic superstar. As we were going through that in our community groups, I couldn't uh, help but notice the distinction between Peter denying Jesus and then Peter standing up boldly for the Gospel in Acts. So we've got a guy here who has been through a lot. He has proven himself faithful as an apostle of Jesus Christ. And he is now proclaiming the gospel with all boldness. Um, we find out in extra biblical literature, Peter died as a martyr uh, late in life. So, so this is the Peter that we'll be, we'll be studying and that we'll be reading through. So 1 Peter chapter 1, he starts by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles in the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, uh, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. May God bless the reading of his word. Through this whole letter, Peter is encouraging hope and exhorting believers to holiness. These, these Christians who are strangers and exiles in a world that is not their home. He reminds his readers that Jesus Christ is the only hope of our salvation. It is through Christ that we are made righteous before God, and it is by his power that we can then live uh, lives of holiness unto God. Peter begins this letter by proclaiming the Christian's hope in the resurrection. The Christian's hope in the resurrection. As is uh, customary in several of the epistles, we see a theologically rich uh, gospel presentation or introduction. Uh, this gospel proclamation or, or this indicative then grounds the rest of the letter, uh, the commands in the rest of the letter, the imperatives in the rest of the letter. And uh, so first off, we see, we see this gospel proclamation. Now, now, Peter identifies himself as the writer, and then he affirms his apostleship. Uh, this, is, this is an important distinction because he is writing to the churches from a position of apostolic authority. Uh, he has been with Jesus, and he has been called by God to uh, deliver his word to his people. What he is writing is the very word of God, not merely Peter's opinions or suggestions. So, so he is writing from a place of apostolic authority, and then he greets his readers who are uh, dispersed Christians through Asia Minor. These are, uh, scholars think these are likely Gentiles who Peter identifies as elect exiles. They are, they are God's elect people, as he goes on to explain, because they have been foreknown and chosen by God. They are exiles because they are living in a world that is ultimately not their home. In many ways, we see the theme of the whole letter here in the first uh, little bit. He is writing to Christians that are suffering persecution to stay firm in their faith and to pursue holiness as elect exiles in this current age. He is, he is uh, reminding us of the glorious hope that we have in Christ, in his resurrection, and in his salvation. So as he greets fellow believers, he immediately expounds on their conversion. And in their conversion, we see God's Trinitarian salvation. We see God's Trinitarian salvation. So verse 2, According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. All right, so, so Peter's unpacking their conversion story, and we see all three members of the Godhead present here. They're all involved in this process. So first, we are saved according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So if you have repented of your sin, if you have placed your faith in Christ and have entered into the people of God, this is, this is not something that happened by accident. This is something that was foreknown by God the Father himself. And, and, and what's more, it was determined or effectually caused by God the Father. This, this word foreknowledge does not merely indicate that God knew something was going to happen, but rather 
It was an intimate and loving choosing of a people for himself. It, it is covenant language that Peter is borrowing from the Old Testament. In Genesis 18, it says, uh, the Lord says, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. For I have chosen him. That word, that word chosen is the same word that is also translated known. God has chosen a people for himself. God has, has known a people for himself in a very intimate way. He, is, he has set his affections upon them, and, and it is not a merely uh, an intellectual knowledge but a personal and intentional choice. We, we see the same idea in Jeremiah 1, where it says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Again, in Amos 3, 2, he says, uh, he tells Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. So this same, this same word, this same chosen, known, God has set uh, uh, effectually on his people. God selected Israel as his representative people on earth in the Old Testament, a people through which all peoples of the earth would be blessed. Uh, Peter draws upon this old covenant uh, language now and applies it to God's new covenant Christians, and he explains the intentional loving role of God the Father in salvation of sinners. We are elect exiles because God the Father foreknew it, because he has lovingly chosen it to be so. We are also elect exiles in the sanctification of the Spirit. So in, in the context of this paragraph, he's talking about conversion. So when we see the word sanctification, sometimes we can think it's progressive sanctification. So we're getting better and better or more Christ-like. And, and it doesn't look like that's what he's talking about here. Um, rather, when he says sanctification here, he is referring to them being set apart, made holy, set apart as God's people. And it was done by the Spirit. God the Father has chosen us, and as sinners hear the gospel preached, the Spirit quickens our heart and gives us new life. We are set apart through the work of the Holy Spirit, bringing us from death unto life. So we see God the Father at work, we see God the Spirit at work, and finally we see God the Son at work in our salvation. Peter says that we are elect exiles for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood. Peter says that we are obedient to Jesus, for it was Jesus who paid the penalty for our sin with his own blood. It is, it is both sides of this salvation coin, if you will. We hear the gospel and we respond to it in repentance and faith to Jesus. That, that is our obedience to Jesus, but it is only by the work of Jesus that we are forgiven. It is nothing that we have done to warrant salvation, but our sin is forgiven through the blood of Jesus on the cross. When he says for sprinkling of the blood, again, we see him hearkening back to kind of old covenant ideas, right? So, so we, we know that sin was atoned for by the sprinkling of blood once a year by the high priest uh, as, he, as he sacrificed an animal. Well, Christ, as our high priest, has offered himself as a one-time sacrifice. On the cross, Jesus paid the penalty, taking our punishment Though he did nothing wrong, he absorbed the wrath of God for our sin so that through him we receive forgiveness and be declared righteous. God the Son accomplished this work. 
And it's by his grace that we're the recipients. So we see God the Father has chosen, God the Son has accomplished the work of salvation, and God the Spirit quickens our hearts, giving us repentance and faith and ushering us into a relationship with him. This, this Trinitarian salvation formula is all over the New Testament, and we see it clearly here in Peter. Peter explains God's work in salvation, and then, and then he goes on to point toward our confidence in salvation as we see God's historical salvation. God's historical salvation. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So, so Peter praises God for our merciful salvation, and, and he does this by pointing to the resurrection of Jesus. Indeed, God is to be praised for the work that he has done in salvation. The whole, the whole thing, all of it, is for his glory. And he has done this not out of some sort of debt owed to mankind, but out of his own mercy. So, so just how do we know that we can count on God for this salvation? How do we know that we have assurance that our sin is paid for, that we are declared righteous before God? What can we look to uh, for assurance? And, and, we, and Peter says here we can look to the resurrection of Christ. Peter says this gives us a living hope. This real historical resurrection of Jesus is something that we must cling to as Christians. Uh, it is this that Peter and Paul repeatedly refer to. Uh, preaching at Pentecost in Acts 2, Peter says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Uh, Roman says, uh, Paul says in Romans 1 that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. We, we know that we can count on the promises of God to be faithful because this God has been shown to be powerful and faithful in the past. We, we are certain of our future resurrection and salvation because the, the apostles bore witness to the resurrection of our Lord. This gives us supreme confidence. It, it works the same way in everyday life with people, right? We, we gain confidence that somebody is going to be able to do something because they have been proven trustworthy and capable in the past. Um, the first time I was in the Philippines, we had uh, um, a mini catastrophe, natural disaster at our house. Our, leaf our roof started leaking and uh, water was just pouring in the walls. So my wife FaceTimes me at Pastor June's house and um, there was um, a lot of commotion. I was worried, but when she said, okay, well, uh, I called our friend who is in the construction business, and he has given me the names of people. He is helping me through this. Immediately, I had confidence. And, and why did I have confidence? Tracy had never gone through a roofing project before. Uh, I had confidence because our friend has proven himself to be trustworthy in the past. He had done great work. He had great connections. He knew the right people. And uh, immediately, I knew if he was involved, the job would get done right. It would get done quickly. Everything was going to be okay. I had full confidence because of his past actions. So conversely, it works the same way. We, we all know people we can't trust, right? We, we know people who, like uh, your typical Detroit Lion, are going to drop the ball. <laughs> Their promises mean nothing. I, I, I will remember the first year 
the first year I worked, I worked with a guy who was this way. And I was given this big project to test a Lincoln Navigator, uh, some parts on a Lincoln Navigator that traveled across the country. And this, uh, my heart sank when they said this guy's assigned to it because I knew, I knew he wasn't going to be able to deliver. I knew he, he, he promised things that he would never do. Um, he went on to explain to me how we're going to do this and that, and I just sat there going, yep, okay. And, uh, and of course, all of that fell through. I had zero confidence in him, and he even didn't meet that confidence level. So uh, the project was a disaster, and I moved on. But uh, his past actions showed he was untrustworthy. Well, God has promised us eternal life in Jesus. God has promised us that we will be raised to life in Christ. God has promised us that if we put our faith in Christ, if we repent of our sin, if we trust in him as our savior, he will be with us. He will see us in uh, eternity. We will be raised to life in him. We can trust in that promise because God has shown himself to be trustworthy. The resurrection is a true historical event. We must cling to this. We see this throughout the Bible. God promised Moses that he would lead his people out of bondage uh, from Pharaoh, and he delivered. Uh, he promised the prophets that he would deliver a Messiah for his people, and he delivered. He promises us that we've been redeemed through his son, and Christians, he's delivered. He proves this by the resurrection, and we have a living hope in our God, a real and true hope, because in his death, his son saw no corruption. Rather, he was raised back to life by God's power, and he lives today ruling and reigning on high. Our Lord has promised us life, and he has shown himself to be trustworthy because of the resurrection of his son. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is why we love him. This is why we trust him. The Trinitarian God saved us. He gives us confidence in this salvation through the resurrection. And then he keeps for us an imperishable salvation. He keeps for us an imperishable salvation. Verses 4 and 5 say that he has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Peter describes what is in store for Christians as a future inheritance. So, namely, we will be uh, with God for eternity in a world that is free from sin and death. Uh, we will live forever without heartache. We will live forever without sin. We will live forever without the pains of growing older and falling apart. We will not have frustration in our work. We will not have strife in our relationships. He'll dry every tear. We will live with him forever and, and, and this is our, our beautiful inheritance that we cling to. U using this term, inheritance, kind of connects the dots a little bit with the exile theme in the book. We are exiles here on earth. We are not living in uh, the place that ultimately will be our home. We are exiles. And, and, and though we live here in the already, uh, we have hope in the future or the not yet. Peter says that this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It is perfect, and it is ours. We can be, how can we be sure that it is ours? Uh, again, we have confidence in our God 
by what he has done in the past. Peter says that it is, it is kept in heaven by God, guarded through faith. God has, has raised us from spiritual death to spiritual life. By his grace, he has granted us faith in his son. And it says here that our inheritance is guarded by God's power through faith. This should be very comforting to us as Christians. If we have truly repented from our sin and trusted in Christ as Lord, if he is our supreme treasure, uh, the one that we have placed true saving faith in, then, then nothing can keep us from the love of God. I don't, I don't have to wonder if I'm going to wake up tomorrow still a Christian. I, I don't have to wonder if I'm going to go out and commit a grievous enough sin that will remove me from God's love. My inheritance in Christ is being guarded by God's power, by God's power through faith. And, and notice, he is not saying it is because you once had a faith experience, uh, but our inheritance is continually guarded through our ongoing faith. This is where we need to be careful. We don't just point to a one-time conversion experience only and say that I had faith, so I'm good to go. My, my, my ticket to heaven is punched. That is not uh, the Christian life. The Christian life is marked by continuous faith. Uh, if our conversion was true, if we were truly reborn in Christ, we will continue to give evidence of this faith throughout the entirety of our lives. Uh, my wife and I often say to each other, we want to finish well. And by finish well, we mean that we want to end our lives um, looking back in a life that was lived in obedience and faith to Christ. I don't want to be characterized by Christianity right now and then, and then fall off uh, the wagon, so to speak. Uh, I, think, I think the saddest thing in the world is to see someone who once claimed to be Christian and as their life progresses, they have uh, turned their back on God. They, they become a, a nominal, in-name-only Christian uh, or, or even worse, just deny the faith entirely. And um, it, it's heartbreaking uh, just because we once had a conversion experience does not guarantee that that experience was authentic. We bear out the authenticity of our faith as we live out uh, our lives in faithfulness to God. Uh, once saved, always saved only works if you were truly saved in the first place. If, if not, the rest of your life, if, if the rest of your life is lived in rebellion to God, then it shows that your faith was not authentic to begin with. But, if God has graciously redeemed us, if he, has, if he has brought us close to himself as we trust him with the entirety of our lives, it says he will keep us by his power. Therefore, finish well. We, we want to finish well. I want to be doing what we sing about at Banger Downs Bible Club, right? I want to be growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be glory and glory forever. Amen. I want my faith to be persevering faith. Uh, and God promises to guard our inheritance by his power through this faith. And th in this passage, we have hope. Our faith and salvation is imperishable because it, because it is kept for us by a God that is imperishable, uh, a God that is undefiled, and a powerful God that is unfading. And it will be revealed to us at the last time. Peter started out this letter by giving us hope in the resurrection. And next, we see him offer hope to Christians, hope during persecution. Hope during persecution. Peter has been explaining why we have hope as Christians and explaining just what our hope is in. And now uh, we clearly see that he is holding out hope 
to a group of believers that desperately need this hope to cling to. He is writing to dispersed people who are enduring persecution. They are mistreated because of their faith, and, and yet Peter says that these people have reason to rejoice. In fact, he says that they are demonstrating tested faith. They are demonstrating tested faith. In verse 6, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So think for a minute what what this means. Uh, Peter is telling a group of Christians to rejoice, to find joy even amidst their trials. In fact, he appears to be commending them because they are indeed rejoicing in the blessed hope of their salvation, even in hard circumstances. This should give us... uh, Pause. This should give us, uh, cause us to go to a bit of introspection. How, how quickly are we to become discontent how, or, or even downright angry because we are mistreated or, or we perceive uh, some sort of injustice has happened to us? Uh, d- don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we should seek after and embrace injustice, but our tenor and our general perspective should not be changing. We should, we should always be rejoicing in Christ. How quick are we to post a pity party for ourselves on social media because we aren't getting our way? Or, or, or my least favorite posts are the vague book posts, which uh, in a vague way describe your problem and is simply there just to complain, uh, to pout and draw sympathy from others. I'm not saying we hide our problems, but I am saying we act like Christians through our problems. Beloved, when we are experiencing trials, especially when we are being mistreated for our faith, We don't mope and complain. We should recognize it for what it is. It is uh, is in this way that our faith is tested by God. Notice, too, that Peter says, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. This is not uh, whimsical persecution brought upon to the astonishment of God, as if he's saying, oh, I I didn't know this was going to happen. God is in control. God tests your faith by putting you in difficult circumstances. And it says it is in this way that he refines us and grows us more and more to the image of his son. He does this because it is necessary. Trial by fire reveals true faith. It purifies us and ultimately glorifies God. Uh, Sinful men are indeed held responsible for sinful actions, but our sovereign creator is testing our faith and purifying our lives. I, I can't help but think of one of my friends um, when I read this passage. He uh, was an already professing believer, and uh, he experienced horrible mistreatment at his job. And through, through no fault of his own, um, lost his job. And, and he could have used this as an excuse for a pity party or to shrink back and pull away uh, from the life of the body. Um, I could easily imagine how I would feel in that circumstance um, extremely angry at an injustice and uh, maybe even angry at God for the circumstances. Uh, but this was not his reaction. Rather than shrinking back, he, he faithfully and bravely accepted the hand he was dealt. He uh, started to involve himself in even greater ways uh, at church, and he became more outspoken in his faith, encouraging others to do the same. I, I remember one specific conversation I had with him um, 
he was, he was broken and he told me how he was trusting God through these extremely difficult circumstances. This was a wonderful testimony to his faith and it was a huge encouragement to me. Um, there were no complaints, no vague book postings, no pity parties, but there was rejoicing in the hope of a future inheritance through the testing of his faith. God does not promise to protect us from suffering. In fact, what we see is God promising to be with us through suffering and that this suffering is for our good ultimately as our faith is tested by fire, as we are conformed to the image of his son and ultimately God is glorified as we persevere. As Peter holds out hope through persecution, he speaks to our tested faith, but he also speaks to our trusting faith, our trusting faith. We continue in verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. All right, so, so these Christians are spread throughout modern-day Turkey. These Christians did not physically see Jesus crucified. They did not see Jesus live. Uh, they did not see Jesus die. They have never met him. They have never seen him. Um, they have heard that he lived a perfect life in obedience to the law. They have heard that uh, he was killed unjustly in a horrific death on the cross. And they have heard that, most importantly, he was raised back to life on the third day. Uh, they have heard the good news of the gospel. Christ died to save sinners who repent of their sin and trust him with their whole lives. They, they have heard that without him, they stand condemned before a holy and a just God and will face eternal punishment in a real place called hell. But with him, but with him, by his mercy and grace, they stand justified and accepted as his children. And more than just hearing, they have received this good news and they have gladly believed. Do not make a mistake. This is, this is not, le, not just completely blind faith, as if they had no credible reason to believe. This is not the Indiana Jones step of faith as you don't see the, the narrow walkway over the cavern until you already step out. Um, their belief is historical. Their belief is credible. Many, many people attested to the actual historical events of Christ and his resurrection. We stand today on solid ground as we uh, point to the testimony of the apostles. Jesus appeared to uh, 500 people after his resurrection, according to Paul. And, and these letters were written about Jesus while eyewitnesses were still alive to verify the facts. Uh, what's more, in terms of historical transmission, there is no more scrutinized but, but more faithfully delivered uh, source from antiquity than the scriptures. There is no ancient text that holds up to criticism like the scriptures. The apostles delivered a credible, truthful, and authentic message. But, even so, these Christians did not witness these things firsthand. Uh, and even though they had never actually seen him, they have received him, and this causes them inexpressible joy. This, this was speaking to the dispersed Christians, but this speaks to us today, does it not? We receive the message from the apostles in the scriptures. We don't currently see him, but we are filled with joy because we are living as his people. And the result of this trusting faith, he says it's the salvation of our souls. True saving faith is trusting faith, that loves God, uh, that loves a God that they have never seen. 
In fact, the Christian life is marked by belief. We are filled with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, and, and the Spirit attests to this faith. I remember uh, when I was a kid singing the song, He Lives. Um, he lives, he lives, Christ Jesus lives today. Uh, those of you who grew up in churches similar to mine probably remember the same thing. Uh, I, I remember a few years ago thinking through it and having a problem with that song uh, because of the last line. It says, you ask me how I know he lives. He lives within my heart, right? Um, well, you ask me how I know he lives, and the first thing I do is I point to the historical evidence of the resurrection. That's how I know Jesus lives. And, and, I, and I think that's the first place we should point. That is fact. Um, I know that Jesus is alive, not just because of a subjective experience uh, in my heart, but I believe uh, because of an objective, verifiable historical event. This is true. Uh, however, there is a sense in which this song does point to truth. How else do we know he lives? Well, the Spirit attests to the reality of our new life in Christ. Paul says in Romans 8, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We have been given the Spirit, and there is a real sense in which we experience God as he indwells a believer. So I, I guess the song isn't so bad after all uh, as I'm trying to exit my youthful, quick-to-fight stage um, of doctrine. Um, though we do not see him, we love him, and we believe, and we are filled with joy. And the outcome of this faith is our salvation. It is, it is a trusting faith, and this fills us with joy by his Spirit. This salvation is truly our hope during persecution. Peter has, has unpacked our hope in the resurrection. Peter has encouraged hope through persecution. And in verses 10 through 12, he points us to hope throughout the scriptures. Hope throughout the scriptures. The entirety of the scriptures, both Old and New Testament, point to Jesus. We know that on the road to Emmaus, Jesus said in Luke 24, O foolish ones, and slow to heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. The entire Bible, all 66 books, point either forward to Jesus or point back to Jesus. It, it is all about him. And here in 1 Peter, we see him speak explicitly about Christ prophesied. He speaks about Christ prophesied. In verse 10, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Peter knows the scriptures, uh, and he knows that the prophets wrote concerning Jesus. All right, so, so keeping what you know about the life and death of Jesus in mind, consider one of the more well-known prophecies uh, about the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Isaiah says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. 
Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, and upon him the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked man and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall proclaim his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. This jumps off the page as Jesus, right? This, this side of the cross, we see this clearly. It is remarkable that hundreds of years before his death, we see such an accurate description of what happened. And, and these are the types of things that the prophets longed to see. These are, the, these are the type of things they wanted to see fulfilled in their lifetime. They could only see the shadow. We can see the full HD picture, this side of the cross. Future salvation was prophesied in the Old Testament, but it was not experienced the same way, not known the same way as New Testament saints do. We see more clearly how Christ has fulfilled the long-standing promises of God. And Peter is clear, they were not ultimately serving themselves. They were serving us. So, so think about that. We are strengthened when we go back to the scriptures and we see uh, the, the prophecies about Christ fulfilled. Our confidence in the scriptures is bolstered. And our confidence in the future promises of God and our inheritance with him is enhanced. These prophets did not get to see Jesus fulfill their word, but they served us in a mighty way. So the implication then is that we should trust our Lord in even greater ways. This, this book, everything this book says is true. It's true. We, we believe it. We are changed and we live it. I, I think it can be really easy to listen to a sermon or to read a short section of scripture and then go about our day as if it doesn't affect our lives. Almighty God has spoken through his prophets and through his apostles. He has proven himself to be faithful both in blessing and in cursing. We should be searching the scriptures in obedience to our Lord, and we should be asking ourselves, what is God saying and how do I need to change in light of this? We, we see what Christ has done for us. We embrace the gospel that's been given to us, and we live, we live a changed life in response to it. Going right along with, with Christ prophesied then, uh, finally, is Christ revealed. We see Christ revealed. Verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophet spoke about the coming Messiah and it has now been revealed that the Messiah is Jesus. The gospel of Jesus is clearly preached now. It is the more complete message that we have received in him, and we, we praise God for this gospel. 
And not only us, but, but also Peter says that um, it is something to which angels long to look. Angels delight in seeing God's saving work of humanity through Christ. C- certainly, Peter has the words of Christ in mind here. In, in Matthew 13, Jesus said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly, I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Praise God that Christ has been revealed to us. His life, his death, and his resurrection are given to us in God's holy word. Hope is a word that we throw around a lot today. Uh, Typically, we say things like, I hope I get that for my birthday, or I hope she's coming to the party, or I hope I get to go see Star Wars on December 18th when it opens. Um, we could usually substitute that word for wish, meaning it's an empty desire that we really want to come true. But, but Peter has a completely different usage of the word hope here. We hope in the resurrection, meaning we have a solid and firm expectation of future blessing because Christ has been raised. We have hope during persecution, meaning we can cling to the promises of God, knowing that one day we will be vindicated and we will be given our inheritance as one of God's children. We see hope throughout all of the scriptures, meaning that the prophets saw with certainty that God will deliver his people through a Messiah, even if they could not clearly see it as we do today. We trust in Jesus Christ, our only hope of salvation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you for the hope of our salvation, the hope that that we find only in you and your son, Jesus. Lord, I pray that we cling to the hope that we see in your resurrection, the hope that strengthens us during trials and the hope that we find over all of the pages of Scripture. Lord, Lord, I pray that as we leave here today, we trust you in even greater ways, knowing that it is you that has loved us. It is you that has called us and keeps us by grace through faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we begin to respond to the message, please stand as we sing by faith.